Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning and welcome to Strength to Strength. It is six o'clock here and time to get started. Today we're going to be continuing in our King and Country series. We already had part one, The King Foreshadowed, and part two, The King Arrives. Today we're going to be looking at King and Country, The King's Constitution. And that will be brought to us from Brother John D. Martin. John D. is from Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, he will be sharing with us. Uh, usually we have a live video um, to present here, but this morning John D.'s um, technology is not working, so he will be joining us by phone. And uh, we look forward to hearing from him on what he has to say about the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, Brother John D., if you want to open with prayer, and the time is yours. Father, we thank you. We thank you this morning that you have all things under your control, and I don't understand why this delay was, but you do. And I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, just come down and grace our meeting with your presence, fill our hearts and minds with uh, your word, and help us, Lord, to understand better when we leave this meeting how to uh, allow your kingdom to dominate our lives and influence our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so I've been assigned to talk about the... the uh, King's Constitution, which of course is the Sermon on the Mount. And my concern has been uh, for quite a few years now uh, that when you talk to most people and ask them why they're Christians, they will tell you, well, they want to go to heaven or they want to escape hell. Uh, what's interesting to me is that uh, that's not where Jesus' focus was. In fact, if you turn to the epistles, you see very little of that emphasis. Uh, the epistles is all about uh, allowing God's kingdom to be established on this earth. Uh, currently by the church. Uh, for instance, Ephesians 1, they read the whole passage. There's not a thing passage about anybody going to heaven. Uh, we do believe that people will go to heaven uh, at the end. Uh, but if people ask me on this billboard line, uh, when I answer the calls, how do I get to heaven? I say, well, uh, you have to join the kingdom of heaven here and now. Uh, so uh, that was Jesus' message. He began uh, his message with nine words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice he did not say repent if you want to go to heaven, although that's true. Uh, he said, uh, repent, I'm introducing a kingdom and uh, you're welcome to join it. And six verses later, after calling his first four disciples, it says he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sicknesses. Uh, and that's right before the Sermon on the Mount. And I think the Sermon on the Mount then uh, spells out what uh, that was all about. Uh, you'll notice in the Gospels that Jesus always called his message the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, so that's focus on. Now, some people think uh, that the kingdom is not a present reality. It's a coming. I mean, even some of our Mennonite people would refer to this age as the church age and did not want to apply the concept of or the uh, terminology of the kingdom of heaven uh, to this age. Uh, but I, I guess uh, Mark 9, 1 to me makes it pretty clear that Jesus meant for the kingdom to be a reality here and now. Because he says in that passage, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them which stand here which shall not taste of, the, of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And I think most people would identify that as, as uh, Pentecost. And so Jesus is saying that when you see, the king, when you see that, then you will know that the kingdom has come. 
So now, the rulers of kingdoms characteristically lay down the law and tell what it means to be a citizen of their kingdom. Um, there's usually a constitution, a Magna Carta, or something that's describing what is expected in that kingdom, what the rights and privileges and duties of those citizens are. Now, the Old Testament constitution was the Ten Commandments. And uh, so now the New Testament kingdom of God uh, has a Sermon on the Mount. It is actually the constitution of that kingdom. It's interesting, this uh, constitution is for uh, a universal and eternal kingdom. It's only about half the length of the, of the uh, constitution of the United States, which of course is a much, much smaller kingdom and a temporary kingdom, and yet it has a much longer constitution. In fact, uh, some people believe that the Sermon on the Mount ends at the end of chapter seven, uh, six, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about chapter 7, so that would make it even shorter. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about this Constitution. Uh, our Constitution of the United States has a preamble. Uh, a preamble is literally means to walk in front of, to amble in front of. It's an introductory statement indicating what is to follow. And so what we see in the preamble, the uh, uh, Beatitudes, as we call them, is in fact uh, giving the privileges and duties of, uh, in a general way uh, for the rest of the Constitution, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what privileges do we have? What uh, rights do we have? Well, a privilege to enjoy the kingdom of heaven, to be comforted, to have an inheritance, to be fulfilled, to experience mercy, to see God, and to be actual uh, uh, children of God, part of his family. Those are the, the rights and privileges of the uh, uh, citizens of this kingdom. Uh, and then we have the duties that follow. So I would like to um, <clears throat> just sort of outline this constitution for you this morning. I often looked at the Sermon on the Mount and I wondered why it did not begin with the new birth, uh, which we know is a very important uh, uh, beginning in the Christian life. Uh, and then a closer look at, the, at this uh, Sermon on the Mount made me realize that that's exactly how it begins. It not only begins with an entrance into the kingdom by becoming poor in spirit, uh, surrendering, becoming teachable, being ready to be a disciple. That's verse 3. So there you have your new birth uh, experience. But then it goes on to describe the dynamics of that new birth. It's an ongoing experience. It has a beginning, but it has... Uh, uh, dynamics that continue uh, throughout one's entire life. Uh, this is not just an event. It is an event. It's a definite beginning. But it is the beginning of a process. Uh, salvation is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And Jesus said, if you make it an end in itself, you will lose it. He says, uh, he that seeks to save his life shall lose it. And so uh, it, this beginning is very important because Jesus is uh, picturing a redeemed society. You can't have a redeemed society unless you have redeemed citizens. So this is a very important part uh, of the Sermon on the Mount uh, to help us understand uh, what this is all about and uh, uh, the, a process that must begin in our lives. Now, if you just have verse three and you don't see this as an ongoing process, uh, someone has said that's like singing a song and ending it on T. Uh, that would punish any musician 
to have a composition that ends on the next to the last note of the song. In fact, Mozart had a trick he liked to play on his old father, Leopold, who was also a musician. He liked to come home late at night, sit down at the piano and play a, a composition and then stop at the next to the last note and get up and go to bed. Well, his poor old father was lying in bed, tossing and turning. This was not a, a good aesthetic conclusion uh, to uh, the musical experience. And so he would lie there and he would toss and he would turn until he finally couldn't resist getting up, going down and playing the last chord on the piano. And then he could go up and go to bed and sleep. And I feel that people who've made salvation an end in itself, uh, an event without the continuing process, are trying to live life uh, with, with a song that ends on T. Uh, they just never really get into the conclusion uh, of, of that, uh, the, the process. So, <clears throat> so let's talk now a little bit about what we have here in this passage. Uh, the first thing we have in, in the Beatitudes is a focus on the character of these citizens of this kingdom. Somebody has said the character of influence is the influence of character. And uh, I would love to spend the time talking about the Beatitudes, but we don't have time to do that this morning. But uh, this is all about influence. Uh, this kingdom of heaven was supposed to influence the rest of society. And that's what you see immediately after the Beatitudes. Uh, you see that uh, the purpose of the kingdom is to influence uh, society. Uh, you know, we're all born with a desire to have an influence. We're sometimes told that desire is, is, is a, a wrong desire to want to dominate or to want to have dominion, which actually was the responsibility given to man at the beginning. He was to have dominion. And that desire is a God-given desire. Of course, it becomes perverted with selfishness, but all of us should have a desire to have an influence on our society, uh, to, to, to be somebody who makes a difference in our society. And that's exactly what this kingdom is all about. So <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, God's people were supposed to demonstrate what a nation looks like whose God is the Lord, Psalm 33. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And uh, that's exactly what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to demonstrate a nation whose God is the Lord. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, Ye are a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or favored people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <clears throat> and so, so we have the preamble to the Constitution that is laying out uh, the duties and privileges of, of the citizens of this kingdom, introduces uh, the concept of a new birth, a change of character that's an ongoing process uh, that uh, continues, and then the result that is an influence on our society. The next thing we have in the Constitution is a, um, a connection between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm sure many of the people listening to Jesus uh, ask the question we all ask of a religious teacher, is he a liberal or is he a conservative? What's he going to do with the laws of the Old Testament? And so Jesus comes out very clearly that he is on the side of law. In fact, the laws he give are, gives are more stringent than the laws of the Old Testament. He makes it very clear that he came to bring to completion those laws. He didn't come to obliterate any of them, including the one that is least. 
Uh, the Jews had figured out which one that was. It was the one where you were told you could, uh, uh, if you found a nest in a tree, you could take uh, uh, the little ones, uh, but you could not take the mother. Uh, and I think the ecologists today would say, well, that, that is an important uh, uh, commandment. <laughs> and so Jesus said, uh, there's no place in his kingdom for, for people who play fast and loose with law. In fact, he uh, later in his teaching said that uh, the love of many shall wax cold because of iniquity. Uh, that's lawlessness. We have a lot of people today who think that uh, it's uh, legalism that uh, causes people to cool off spiritually, and it certainly can, but uh, Jesus never targeted that. He said the thing that's going to cause uh, apostasy is lawlessness. And of course, he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a warning, in fact, four warnings against uh, that concept of lawlessness. And so he comes out very clearly here saying that this ties right into the Old Testament. Uh, this is going to be a kingdom of laws. Uh, and uh, the lawless person is the least in the kingdom. The people who are going to be the greatest in the kingdom are the people who have a high respect for law and teach a disciplined way of life. Uh, in fact, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Old Testament. According to the Old Testament law, you were guilty if you committed murder. Jesus said you're guilty if you're angry with your brother. That's a much higher standard and, of course, takes care of the whole issue of murder. The same thing is true with adultery. In the Old Testament, that was the crime. Uh, Jesus said the problem here is lust. I'm, uh, this, uh, I'm, uh, we're going to have a law against lust. And, and so it, I'm just giving of how he brought to completion the Old Testament. People ask me all the time uh, how, how, what I think of the Old Testament. And I say, well, the Old Testament is uh, 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 preliminary. It, it, it moves us in a direction that finally culminates in Christ, and he is the completion of that Old Testament uh, law. So that's what you have next. You have a connection, which I, th I, I really appreciate that connection that makes it clear how the kingdom of heaven is related to the kingdom uh, in the Old Testament. Then we move into the next part, <clears throat> which is seven, 5, 17 to 20, which, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 5, 21 to 47, which I call the kingdom statutes. And here we have the kingdom morality. Here are the laws uh, that we are to keep. And it's interesting that if you really look at those laws, they would be the laws that I think everybody would say uh, would be would produce the perfect society, a law in which anger uh, has been overcome, a law in which lust has been overcome, which destroys families and uh, uh, causes all kinds of havoc uh, in society, uh, a, a, a society in which uh, dishonesty is overcome. People mean yes when they say yes, and they mean no when they say no. A society in which uh, people don't coerce other people. They don't resist evil people. Uh, they overcome evil with good. They, they influence them by heaping coals of fire on their head, loving them, blessing them, praying for them. Uh, people don't like to be coerced. In fact, that's one of the accusations I get all the time when people call me. They're upset at the church because the church is uh, trying to dominate everybody's life. Uh, and, of course, I have to tell them that, uh, no, that's wrong. We do not believe, we believe in freedom of conscience. Uh, but it, it's not tell somebody that they're wrong and that they're out of sync with the laws of the universe and with the God of the universe, uh, but we, we don't use any coercers to make people uh, uh, obey those laws. And so you have that next, uh, how we're to relate 
to to evil people. So you have you have a morality where anger is uh, dealt with, uh, lust is dealt with, dishonesty is dealt with, and the whole idea of coercion and mistreating other people uh, uh, or dominating other people is dealt with. So that's chapter five. Uh, so that's the kingdom statutes, and then you come into chapter six, which is the kingdom spirituality which is the dynamic that motivates that morality. And it's interesting, uh, there's just a lot of connection in the Sermon on the Mount with Judaism, and here's one. Uh, Judaism said the three pillars of righteousness are almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. That was, that was Judaism's code for righteousness. And Jesus uh, endorses that. Uh, he picks up on that and uh, talks about those three things. Uh, it's interesting that the word alms is the word, the Hebrew word for righteousness. And, uh, and what Jesus does next is he picks up that particular pillar of righteousness and elaborates on that. Uh, and I think that's important because that is the most important characteristic of the Christian. The Christian is a giver. The Christian is not a taker. Uh, the world is divided into two classes, the givers and the takers. And even if a Christian is an invalid, uh, a Christian will find out a, a way to give, to pray, to perhaps write letters. Uh, the heart of the Christian is to give. John the Baptist was asked once, what do you expect us to do to demonstrate our repentance? And he says, well, if you have two coats, give one away. If you have extra food, give it away. I don't know how many people today would give that as an evidence for repentance, but that's what John said. And then we have Zacchaeus, uh, who Jesus came to his house. And uh, uh, after that visit, we don't know what was in the visit, but Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away half my goods. I'm going to restore fourfold. And Jesus said, today is salvation come to this house. Uh, that's a message of the gospel that has been very neglected, that Christians are not takers. Christians do not accumulate things on this earth for themselves. They are givers. They disperse. They're generous. They're liberal in the biblical sense of the word. And so Jesus then elaborates on uh, that one pillar of Jewish righteousness, which is giving, laying up treasure in heaven and not accumulating wealth for yourself. Um, I think it's interesting that that aspect of Christianity is in this chapter on the kingdom spirituality or piety rather than in chapter 5, uh, because I think that's where it belongs. I think it is part of the dynamic that drives the morality of chapter 5. So, so that's chapter uh, to the end of the chapter. And then we have, <clears throat> in chapter 7, uh, some people don't include this on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, or, or the, yes, the, the uh, Constitution, because it actually is telling us how to apply the Constitution. It's telling us warnings uh, against what happens if it's not applied. So in a way, it's a little bit different from the first two chapters. Uh, so the first thing we have is four kingdom cautions uh, in applying the King Sermon on the Mount. And I, I want to spend a little time with that one, uh, so I'm going to come back to that. And then at the end of the chapter, we have four kingdom warnings. And uh, here are the four kingdom warnings. Beware of the undisciplined life, the easy way. Beware of false prophetic personalities, the theoretical way, the people that have all their theology right, uh, but it doesn't translate into life. Uh, beware of lawless miracle workers. They have the idea it has to go beyond theory, theory but then they have a false uh, 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 
demonstration of the power of the gospel. And finally, beware of foolish builders on a false foundation. So we have those four warnings at the end uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to go back now to the applications of, of the Sermon on the Mount, um, the four kingdom cautions, because Jesus has laid out uh, an idealism that is the reason why most people postpone this to another age, because they say this is not realistic. Jesus has pictured a new kind of person. He's pictured a new kind of society without anger dominating or lust or dishonesty or revenge or violence. Uh, he pictures a society where the tyranny of property is broken. He pictures a society where there's genuine faith without hypocrisy. He's actually picturing a little colony of heaven on earth, and people say, is it real? Uh, but yes, it is real. But Jesus said there are some things that we need to uh, consider if, if this is going to actually work the way it's supposed to. So I have four things I want to give here that Jesus gave. The first one is uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7, and I'm going to call this correct with compassion. Um, <clears throat> Anabaptists are passionate about these ideals, and there has been this constant effort to have the perfect Christian community. And uh, what starts out as a beautiful ideal, and people are really excited uh, if, it's, if they're not careful uh, it turns into a nightmare of judgmental attitudes, criticism, gossip, uh, and, and just all kinds of ugliness. And Jesus understood what we don't see. And so he gives us these ca this caution. Uh, how shall we relate these teachings in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, this Constitution? How shall we relate them to our fellow disciples? How shall we handle these ideals? Well, the first thing he says is don't judge. Now, he's not saying we should not discriminate, because obviously he ends the chapter with some real uh, specific discriminatory concepts that we should apply. But what he's saying is don't condemn. It's what we find in John 3.17. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. Now, if you look at the word condemn and look at the last four letters, D-E-M-N, you only need to change one letter in that those four letters to get what he really meant. It's the word damn. We are not supposed to put other people down, uh, which is the essence of damning people or condemning them. Uh, that's not really what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, we're not supposed to uh, be judgmental and condemning. Uh, and it, it, it's wrong for, uh, for three reasons. Uh, number one, <clears throat> It's the opposite of what Jesus did. I just told you he did not come to condemn the world. He did step down to our level, uh, but he came down here to, to lift us up to, uh, to his level. Uh, he, he did not come here to condemn. He did not come to, to put people down. In fact, he says, if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I've spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. So Jesus was not a person to be putting people down. That was not his approach in life at all. Um, so uh, the second thing, uh, it causes us to project our own faults on others. Romans chapter 2 verse 1 says, Who are you that condemns another person? You're doing the same thing. And uh, I've noticed that too. Uh, people tend to judge other people uh, 
from their own uh, weaknesses. They tend to project them. The liars are sensitive to the lies of other people. Proud people are usually sensitive to pride in others. Uh, lustful people are usually critical of uh, other people who are, are, are lusting. Uh, of course, we had that uh, incident uh, a few years ago where Jim Baker uh, uh, had a moral breakdown, and then you had Jimmy Swaggart uh, jumping on it on his TV program just saying how awful this was, only to be found out within the next year that he was having an even worse problem. So uh, that's the warning here. Uh, correcting another brother carries a very high risk, and that risk is self-righteousness. And that's why uh, the Bible says we're to correct in meekness, lest you also be tempted, because there's this tremendous temptation when you're trying to uh, point out the fault in another person uh, to climb up high and, and uh, be, become self-righteous and uh, feel like you're better than the other person. I call it the Haman syndrome. Uh, he thought he could raise himself by putting Mordecai down. Uh, he was raising himself, but in a way that he was not really planning. So <clears throat> number one, it's the opposite of what Jesus did. Number two, it causes us to project our own faults on other people. And finally, it misses the goal of correction. The goal of correction is to redeem the brother. <clears throat> uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, the whole, the whole thing is to, to restore the brother. Uh, so what is the answer? How, how do we do this? Well, Jesus explains it. He says, uh, be sure that you have your own repentance well established uh, before you set out to uh, correct your brother. He says, quit beholding the beam that's in your brother's eye. Quit, quit gazing at his fault and start looking at yourself. <clears throat> and, uh, it, you know, we're, <laughs> it's interesting, I think, that he chose the eye. He says, look, you're getting ready to do eye surgery. Uh, he, that's probably the most sensitive part of the human body. The, the, this, I just had cataract surgery uh, a couple months ago, and I was very concerned because of very, very small fraction of people have a cataract surgery that goes bad. And uh, the idea of risking one's, uh, losing one's sight is, is just an awful thing to, to consider. And he says, when you go to correct your brother, uh, consider that you're, you're ready to do the most delicate and the most uh, crucial operation that you could possibly do. And so the surgeon uh, is very concerned. One of the things that he's concerned about is infection. And so with that cataract surgery, they gave me all kinds of eye drops, antibiotics of all sorts. And, and uh, you know, that was the, their main concern, infection. And, of course, we know that surgeons wash their hands. They, they, they wash their hands, I think, for like uh, two minutes, something like that, with the best antibiotics. And so Jesus is saying, you, go, you make sure you've washed your soul. Make sure that uh, there's contagion in your attitude. Make sure when you go to your brother, you have one of humility. Make sure that your purpose is to restore and not to put him down. Uh, you might be, have to say something that's very hurtful, and surgery is hurtful, but the pur purpose of surgery is to hurt, it's to heal. And so he's, uh, Jesus is saying, if you're going to go to correct your brother, it probably is going to hurt, but make sure that the hurt, the way you do it, make sure that you're, you cause the least amount of hurt, make sure if there's hurt, it's not because you said it in a hurtful way. Uh, uh, this is something I've really had to work on in my life. I mean, the, the temptation for self-righteousness and judgmentalness and condemnation and putting people down and raising ourselves uh, by doing that, I think is 
but probably one of the most uh, damaging uh, aspects of the way Christians handle their responsibilities toward their brother. So, uh, so the first thing that we need to do is secure our own repentance. Quit gazing at the fault and start gazing inwardly and make sure that we have ourselves in a position where we can do this extremely, extremely delicate, crucial surgery. And then number two, uh, gently correct your brother. Uh, Self-righteousness sees the uh, moat. Uh, the clean heart sees how to remove it, if it was even there in the first place. Uh, our brothers are precious. I don't think we that every one of them has gifts that contribute to the congregation. I'm just thinking right now of, of uh, uh, a few people in our congregation that trouble me with some things that I would like to see different. But I, I can also think of things in those brothers that our congregation needs. And it would be a real loss if we could not keep those brothers in the congregation. Now, there comes a time when that can't be done. But I think we need to realize that every brother is a valuable brother. Uh, and there may be a time when you'll need him to, to, to help you with, with your Christian life. And if, if you obliterate him from the congregation or from your life, you'll be without the helper you need later. Uh, a few cautions that I would uh, bring here. Uh, hatred, greed, jealousy, these, and hurts, these are all contagious. And there are people who walk around expressing those things. And uh, you really should avoid those people who, who make uh, that kind of talk and that, those kinds of attitudes uh, their, their primary focus. Uh, the second thing I would say is fight against gossip. If somebody says gossip is that in both ears and comes out the mouth greatly enlarged. And uh, we all have to, to deal with because uh, gossip helps us make ourselves uh, look better and the other brother look worse. And that's, that's just an awful thing. And the third thing is develop a readiness to compliment. We are so ready to criticize, but there are people that I have met that are just ready to compliment. You know that when you're around them, they're going to make you feel like a very special person. Uh, they do everything they possibly can to encourage people to compliment them. Uh, there was a teacher at EMC at one time that the students used to say about her, uh, you, you did not misbehave for Mrs. Brackbill because it made her so sad when you did that. And she was always thinking so well of all her students that it just—it was just unthinkable to ever do anything to make her feel bad because she was such a, a positive person and had such a such an uplifting approach and attitude toward all of her students. So, uh, the first thing that the first caution then is uh, avoid the judgmental attitude. Uh, correct your brother with compassion. The second thing, the second caution is how do we relate these ideals to the world? Uh, the, that first one was how do we relate them to each other. The, last, the second one is how do we relate them to the world? Well, this one I have said uh, tells us to witness with wisdom. Without grace, these ideals are impossible. In fact, for people to try to apply these ideals without grace is probably going to turn into a disaster. Marxism is an example of that. The uh, maxim of Marxism was from each according to his means and to each according to his need. Well, that's straight out of the Gospels, and that's wonderful. And they won many people because that's a wonderful promise that they're going to do that. But it turned into a nightmare uh, because selfishness was not dealt with. And so uh, 
And I tell people that on the phone. I say, when I talk about the kingdom of God, there are people say to me, well, I suppose you voted for Bernie Sanders. And I say, yes. I, no, I know I didn't vote for Bernie Sanders. But it is true that when you hear him talk, uh, he's, a lot of what he says is sort of reflecting the ideals of the kingdom. But it's a dangerous uh, concept to try to carry that out unless you have surrendered your life to Jesus and selfishness is brought into control. So anyway, we need to be careful how we relate uh, these teachings. Uh, to those who are without. I think we need to uh, discern uh, the difference between the simple person, uh, the fool, and the scorner. The simple person believes everything he's told, and uh, uh, he will try to believe what you have to say, and you can say more to him than you can to the fool. The fool is opposed to, to what is right, and he fights against it. And the scorner not only fights against what's right, he tries to destroy the messenger as well. And so I think we have to be careful. Uh, when, I went on, when we went on our wedding trip, our first night was in Winchester, Virginia. And uh, we get up the next morning. Uh, there were no Mennonite churches in Winchester. So I guess we went to the church with the highest steeple. And uh, we went at 9 o'clock. Uh, most churches besides ours do not start at 9 o'clock. Theirs started later. But they were having an early uh, morning Bible study led by the pastor. And the sub the, the uh, series that they were on was the Ten Commandments, and it happened to be on the uh, commandment, Thou shalt not kill, that Sunday that we attended. And the pastor started off by saying, uh, there, are three base, there are two basic concepts here. Uh, the first group of people uh, believe that it's, it's right to kill under certain circumstances, uh, but it's wrong to commit murder. Uh, it's wrong to kill for personal reasons. He said, I'm sure there's nobody here that represents that, uh, the second view, which is that all killing is wrong. Well, of course, I was sitting there smiling, and I waited until I had my opportunity, and I raised my hand, and I said, uh, well, I represent that minority view. And all they were all so happy. Oh, we're so glad you're, you're here. We'd like to hear that view. And so I started to tell them uh, a little bit about non-resistance, and it wasn't long until they, they didn't want to hear any more. So we have to be careful. I, I look back. If I had handled that differently, I might have been able to to open some hearts to that subject, but I don't think I handled it very well. So we have to be careful how we uh, give these ideals uh, to the world around us. Now, the Bible says we are to be the light of the world, so we are to communicate the gospel to the world. So how do we do it if, if uh, uh, people are going to uh, not be able to apply these? Well, it says we're to be the light of the world. We are supposed to demonstrate, we're to show people, less talking, more living. And uh, uh, they, it, it, back at that passage, it said, they will see your good works. And so the world has to see. The Christian can believe, and then he sees when he applies his belief. But the world has to see. They have to see something. On, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the disciples uh, were... were uh, praising God, and they ended up speaking in tongues, and then the people said, what is this? And then the sermon followed. Uh, too many times we're trying to preach the sermon without the demonstration. And uh, the gospel order is for the world, there must be a demonstration. Nothing got the message of forgiveness across to the world better than the nickel mine shooting. I mean, everybody was talking about forgiveness because they saw the demonstration and they wanted the explanation. So, uh, Witness with wisdom, and the, the, the maxim there is make sure that you're showing before you're telling. Uh, they say that uh, when you made a cannon, 
the cannon had to be 15 times heavier, 1,500 times heavier than the cannonball, or it wouldn't shoot straight. And I was over Gettysburg one time, and I I, I saw the uh, weight of the cannon and the cannonball, and uh, I think I had that figure right. But there was a there was a formula. There had to be much more weight to the cannon than to the cannonball, and I think that applies here uh, with our witness. The third question that's answered is, well, how are you going to have the wisdom to know how to do all of this, to relate these properly to your brother and uh, to the people of the world? Well, the next one is proceed with prayer. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. And it took me a long time to realize that there's a promise connected with every one of those. Everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. And to everyone that knocketh to him it shall be opened. I have come to say there are no unanswered prayers. They're not answered in the way sometimes we think they should be answered uh, because God gives us what we need, not what we want. And so sometimes when we pray, we are not aware exactly what we need. It's a little bit like when I went to high school, I wanted to study to be a farmer because uh, that's what I thought it was going to be. So I wanted to take uh, vocational ag. And my dad said, look, I can teach you all the vocational ag you need to know right here on the farm. You're going to take the academic course, uh, which was a college preparatory source, the course, <laughs> which my dad didn't really mean to prepare me for college, but that's what he did. Uh, he ended up giving me what I needed for the rest of my life, uh, unknown to him and to me. And I think that's a little bit the way it is with, with God. He hears our prayer, and he knows what uh, need is represented in that prayer, and then he gives us what we need, not we ask what we ask for. For instance, you pray for patience. What are you going to get? Tribulation worketh patience. <laughs> so that's an example of what I'm talking about. So it says, proceed with prayer. He says we're to ask, we're to seek, we're to, to knock, uh, so that we have the wisdom to make all of these applications. Uh, one thing about prayer, some people wonder why uh, they don't get answers to their prayers. Jesus taught several times, it's the persistent prayer that gets the answer. George Mueller said he prayed for five men for 50 years. Two of them were converted shortly before he died, and somebody observed that the other three were converted shortly afterward. Uh, I think God uh, listens to hear what we really care about in our prayers, and so persistence is a very important part of the prayer. And then I must uh, bring this to conclusion so we have some time for some questions. Uh, the last thing that he uh, uh, gives us is that we should serve with self-sacrifice. All right. How shall I conduct myself in situations not covered by this teaching? This is a very short constitution. It doesn't cover everything. So suppose I run into something that there's nothing in this constitution that addresses specifically. Well, <laughs> here's where the expansion clause in the constitution is. You know, in the United States Constitution, there's an expansion clause called the uh, uh, commercial clause, I think. Uh, and it basically says, if there's anything that the federal government needs to do that's not covered in this constitution, they have the power to do. I, I'm not getting that said right. It has basically to do with interstate commerce. And it's known as the expansion clause. Well, the expansion clause in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have your Bible open, is uh, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And sort of smile, because if 
if I had been choosing something that people could reference uh, to get them an answer for any issue that they face, I probably would not have chosen what Jesus chose. He chose our selfishness as our reference point. Uh, that's unique because that means there isn't anybody that lacks this reference point. All of us are intensely selfish by nature. And Jesus turns this on its head and says, use this selfish inclination you have to decide how you're going to act toward everybody else. So think the most selfish thoughts you can think, and then go do that to the, to the person uh, that, that you're ministering to. And that, there again, I go back to Haman. He's the best example of this in the whole The king said to Haman, what shall I do to the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman, of course, thought it was himself. So he said, well, uh, get the king's horse out, put this man on the king's horse, array him in the king's robes, uh, put the crown on his head, have somebody lead him through the streets saying, this is the man who the king delights to honor. And then the king says, you go do that to Mordecai. (laughs) And uh, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your selfishness is a reference point that will give you uh, abundant wisdom to know how to apply uh, these teachings to anybody you meet, uh, just use your selfishness as a reference point, and then turn that outward instead of inward, and uh, and you'll be right in, in the way you you decide. So, <clears throat> I like that. Uh, the Bible says, "My strength is made perfect in weakness, and our selfishness worse weakness." And out of that can come strength if we apply this expansion clause. Surely the wrath of men shall praise thee, Psalm seventy six ten. God has chosen the base things of the world. Uh, and that's what he uses. So we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just amazing. It covers every aspect of life, and it even at the end tells us how uh, to apply it uh, in a way that is constructive. So now, do you have any questions? I'm sorry I couldn't see you. It would have been uh, an inspiration to see your expressions, but uh, I was didn't have that uh, privilege this morning. Yes, well, thank you, Brother John, for sharing. That's been uh, very um, interesting, and um, it's been a real blessing to me, and I'm sure to all of us. Just uh, one question here to get started, and then we'd like to open it up to the audience here to uh, share whatever questions you might have as well. So um, in, in the context of um, relating to, to the world, um, you talked about the, the colony on Earth, um, and you, you made the phrase about uh, living more and speaking less. Um, what is that a reference to? Is that a reference to evangelism that we're to be uh, seen but not um, heard? Or uh, do you want to just um, expound on what you meant by that phrase? Uh, well, obviously, some people have taken this to an extreme. I mean, if if you go to the Bruderhof, it's hard to, to even talk sometimes to them about spiritual things because they're reacting. Uh, they they see that most Christians are talkers, and so they they're they're trying to demonstrate by community, and uh, they don't say much. Uh, Brother Lynn Martin, who was our late bishop, said it this way: actions speak louder with words. So the action should be there, but there also should be words. I mean, Peter did explain when they said, "What is this?" He he that was his chance to preach the sermon. So I guess I shouldn't say, uh, I shouldn't minimize the speaking. I should actually more emphasize, uh, be sure you get a a very strong picture of the gospel uh, out there and then uh, 
what you have to say about it is going to carry some weight. Does that answer your question? Yes, uh, thank you. Appreciate that. All right, so um, we'd like to open it up here for a few minutes uh, to anyone who has any questions or comments, and uh, who will be first? Brother John, thank you so much for this message and for your passion in preaching the kingdom of God. Um, it's been a tremendous inspiration to me. Um, so, yeah, a question I have for you is at the end of the, of the sermon there, um, Jesus, you know, they were astonished, the people who were listening, because he spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. My question for you, um, John, is why have so many of us as Anabaptists lost that astonishment with this sermon? Um, it was something that I didn't hear preached a whole lot growing up, that we are Sermon on the Mount Christians. Uh, it seems like we have lost that astonishment as a people. And, and why is that? Um, why is it different for you? You're, you're a brother who's astonished at this sermon. And uh, it, it shines through your life and your teaching for years. But, but why have some of us lost that astonishment? Well, I think uh, one of the, uh, I think a number of things have, uh, have contributed to that. And that is the whole focus of the gospel has shifted to what I call a save me gospel with a focus on getting to heaven at the end. Uh, this uh, does not focus on, the, on that. Uh, it focuses on uh, life here and now. But the, but the focus shifted. Uh, the preaching became a, a revivalistic preaching, uh, which when I don't know about you, but most of the revivalistic preaching I heard was uh, you need to get saved so you can go to heaven. And, of course, then you had the altar call with a lot of pressure put on with warnings, uh, frightening uh, descriptions of hell, uh, which I don't want to minimize that reality. But, but that, was, that was the motivation. And then, of course, you had dispensation, Mennonite premillennialism that did sort of relegate the kingdom to the future. Uh, and then, of course, you had the gospel song. Uh, which was written for the revivals of the early 1800s and and uh, the Moody revivals at the end of the 1800s and the Sunday school movement in between, and that was all focused on on uh, revivalism, and uh, the songs that were written to accompany that were were songs about getting saved and going to heaven and how wonderful heaven is going to be, and of course since that that genre has produced songs in some other categories, but the uh, I mean you have some gospel songs about cross bearing and. Uh, uh, living the life, but they're few in number compared to the many, many songs about just getting saved and going to heaven. And so we were, uh, I grew up with a tremendous emphasis on the importance of the church, but I didn't hear the reason why the church was important. I guess I would have gotten the impression the church is important because you can't go to heaven unless you obey the church or something like that. It still was focused on heaven. The community concept, the kingdom concept, was there. Uh, there was there was some emphasis on living the life, obviously, but uh, but the focus shifted, and so I think because of that, the Sermon on the Mount uh, basically was not as important as it had been earlier in uh, uh, Anabaptist experience. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, just yesterday, I had the privilege of reading part of the sermon to an Iranian man. And it's, it's been just so fun to read this, this sermon with him and talk about it. Um, 
yeah, my, my prayer is that, that we would get that astonishment back. And, um, thank you. Thank you for being, for, uh, engaging us and inflaming our imaginations in this way. Thank you. Let, let me say a little bit more about it. The reason why people were astonished and the reason why they responded the way they do and people still do is because this is raw realism. Uh, this is not, this is not, uh, starry eyed idealism gets right down to the nitty-gritty of life. And in fact, a person like Richard Dawkins, who will never believe that Jesus uh, is divine or, or the gospel in any way, uh, does say, if you, if you read Dawkins, he says, if the way of Jesus were carried out, actually practiced, it would be the best hope for our world. Amen. Thank you for that question. Is there any other questions somebody would like to share? Good morning. I have a question. Sure. Uh, you talked about the importance of rules. Could you e expound on that a little more? Somebody has said you can have... Uh, uh, let me get this right here now. You can have form without life, but you can't have life without form. If you study physical life, it is, it is mind-boggling, the order that's required for that life to exist. And so the minimizing of order, now I, I understand it's often been used in a wrong way, and, and, and I said you can have form without life. Uh, but it is interesting, the verse that is quoted they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. I just cringe when I hear that verse quoted out of context. It's, it's quoted in the context of people who don't have any power to overcome their lusts and their immorality. That, you go read it there in Timothy. It, it's not talking about people who have legalism uh, that's dead. It's talking about people who, who say all the right words and they say they love Jesus, but they can't overcome their lusts. Uh, so... I don't think that it's possible to, to have a, a dynamic Christian life unless it is very, very uh, disciplined and ordered. Uh, does that answer your question? Yes, I think it does. It's sort of the church I come from. We have our regulations are on the same standard as Scripture, I guess. Um that's what I was referring to. Well, let, let me call that. There again, I think Protestantism has done us a disservice. In the battle against modernism, uh, it was a battle to be scriptural. And uh, they fought modernism with scripture, which is right. I mean, I don't have any problem with that. But it also came out that we obey the Bible. Well, <laughs> Christians are not focused on just obeying text. They're focused on the person that the text reveals, and that's Jesus. Uh, but what happened then is the Mennonites, when they developed their standards, they felt then obligated because they, they really were in the camp of the fundamentalists who were fighting uh, modernism. They, they, they basically then felt obligated that they should put a verse after everything that they're requiring. That, I think, has done us a disservice and has come back to bite us because now we have a generation that says, well, this isn't in the Bible, and this isn't in the Bible, and this isn't in the Bible. They don't understand that, that culture 
is uh, they are just simply wholesome norms uh, that derive from the gospel, that derive from uh, various things. But I can tell you a number of things that we do that are just wholesome things to do that I can't give you any scripture for. Number one is, why don't we have musical instruments in public worship? Now, what happens is people, in order to deal with that issue, they go and try to find scriptures. And to me, I would make a fool of myself if I tried to do that. I could not do that. But I can give you good practical reasons. I can give you good wholesome results you'll get if you don't introduce instruments in public worship. In fact, I'll tell you, if you do introduce instruments in public worship, you're going to end up not having four-part singing like we have. The singing is going to go downhill. Alice Parker, who wrote the, the arrangements for Robert Shaw Corral, said that uh, when she visited our people. She said one of the reasons why this has been maintained is they don't have instruments in their worship. So there's an example something I couldn't put a verse to that's just, that enhances our, our, our spiritual life. Uh, it's just something we've learned is, is a wholesome practice. Separate seating in church, segregated seating. I don't think I could find any scripture for that. I could give you some good practical reasons for it. So to say that everything has to have a verse, uh, I, I think is something that uh, we got from the fundamentalist. Uh, yes, by all means, we want to obey the gospel. But there are all kinds of cultural things that we, you learn along the way that actually uh, are a, a, a fertile soil out of which that gospel life can, can thrive. So uh, I just wanted to throw that in there for what it was worth. Okay, I think we have time for maybe um, one more question, and who will that be? Just to verify, Brother John, what was that quote, culture is wholesome norms, or how, how did you put all that? Yeah, a cause, a culture is basically uh, 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 cultural boundaries that uh, provide a wholesome environment for the gospel to thrive. All right. Well, we want to uh, thank everyone for being on here this morning. Just uh, one more um, comment in relation to what you had uh, spoken about, how the world perceives the, the church and, and about living and, and so on. Um, probably many of us are aware that Mahatma Gandhi was a, a Hindu, but he had studied Christianity and had studied the Sermon on the Mount and ultimately uh, rejected it, uh, not because of Jesus' words, but because of Jesus' followers and uh, saying that Jesus' followers are the most uh, warlike people. He didn't see that in Jesus, but uh, he rejected Christianity because of those who professed uh, the name of Jesus, which is uh, very, very sad. But um, yeah, it may uh, challenge us to um, live as, um, as we heard, you know, live as, uh, as Jesus uh, taught and not only be um, uh, hearers of the word, but, but doers also. An interesting note, Gandhi uh, was inspired a lot by Leo Tolstoy, and among Leo Tolstoy's uh, collection of writings was found uh, uh, a, an essay by a reformed Mennonite. Yeah, I knew there was some... Uh, on on non-resistance. Okay. Okay, and, and Tolstoy wrote a lot about that, like in his book, uh, The Kingdom of God is Within You, the... The yes. entire subject is on peace, peacemaking. All right. And Martin well, Luther King derived a lot of his inspiration from both Gandhi and uh, Tolstoy on the idea of, of meeting evil 
uh, with nonviolence. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. All right. Well, thanks again to everyone who joined us this morning. And um, Brother John, if you would um, lead us in prayer here before we close. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit and the new birth and the, the life of God himself that that brings to us individually and then infuses our community relationships that it is possible for us to demonstrate what you intended for man from the beginning. It is possible to have a restoration of those ideals that got lost in the fall. And Lord, I know it won't be perfect, but it can be credible. So give us the repentance we need to help the world to see what happens when we fail and that those ideals do not fail when we fail. And I just pray, Lord, just bless every person on this phone line today. Help us to go out with a renewed inspiration to demonstrate what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother John. Just uh, one announcement. Uh, next week, uh, we're looking forward to hearing from Daniel Willis. Uh, Daniel Willis is from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and he's going to be sharing about my kingdom into uh, my, my journey into kingdom Christianity. So looking forward to that. He has a very fascinating story, and I'm sure that will be of um, interest and edification for all of us. All right. Uh, God bless your day today, and I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. <laughs>